This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia, and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. All right, Chris Saxon back here at the VIP Podcast. That's Virginia in politics. And if you're in Virginia, you're in, in politics, you're a VIP by definition because we do this every year, 24-7, 365 every year. Politics never stops in Virginia. But that's a good thing. The opposite of politics is very bad, right? It's called violence. <laughs> it's called mob violence. If we don't have the political uh, system that we have in place, you know, we are, we are left to our own devices. And this, this, prod, this podcast, sorry, is brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia, as well as Virginia Free, of which I am the executive director, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, pro-business organization uh, that was founded in 1988 here in Virginia. Today's guest is Jacob Fish with Americans for Prosperity Virginia. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. What, uh, what does AFP do? So, Chris, for anyone who's not aware of what AFP is, so um, Americans Prosperity is a nonprofit, nonpolitical organization. We focus on policy issues across the country. Um, and really what we do is we exist to break down barriers that keep people from reaching their full potential. Now, the way that looks for us is we work on policies that we know impact everyday Virginians. Uh, and the AFP Virginia chapter is one of 35 chapters that are state-based that we have across the country and one of the larger chapters. When you say you're not political, one has to go, aren't you though? Because you're involved in policy, therefore you are involved in politics. So you, but you're not partisan. So I think that's is, that, a, is that a better definition? I think that's the difference, right? So I think we're a policy-based organization, but where we really exist is to educate activists and community leaders and legislators on the issues that we know impact individuals the right. most. But where we're not political is that we don't work with just one side or the other, right? The whole okay. idea here is that we advocate on behalf of issues that we know are going to help individuals reach that full potential, and we're willing to work with anybody to get to that objective. Let's talk about your structure then very quickly for the audience because yeah. you're a 501c4 and there's a lot of discussion on C3, C4, 527, super PACs, state PACs and the like. What does a 501c4 do and what is it allowed to do and not to do? Yeah, so we are a advocacy organization, right? So the way that we exist is as a, a specifically a grassroots advocacy organization. And so we have a number of staff that are in the state that do a number of different roles. But primarily, our, our objective is to be able to focus on the policies that we know impact individuals, to go into communities, to go into legislative offices and talk about those issues. And specifically, where we are a little bit different than most lobbying organizations, is that we specifically bring those community leaders and those individuals that care about those issues to directly connect with their legislators and share their stories. And we do that in a number of different uh, issues, from healthcare to economic progress to education, which are actually the three major issues that we're focusing on for this legislative session. Those again are what? Uh, economic progress, okay. healthcare, okay. and education. Okay. And really we went into this year, you know, last year we were involved in uh, 13 House of Delegates races. Um, we ended up getting 10 of those individuals that we had endorsed were so you can, elected. So a 501c4 can endorse candidates? We can, again, because the whole idea is that we're endorsing individuals based on their stances on issues that okay. we support. Okay. Um, and, you know, but really the, the election is just sort of 
uh, a step where all this really matters is where we are now during the actual right. legislative session, which is, can we get these bills passed? And do you do, does the 501c4, can it do that in primaries too, nomination contests? And have you done that? Potentially, but we have not. You've not? Have you had the discussions? We've had conversations about it, but for the most part, you know, we're trying to look at who those individuals are going to be that can really help to advance those policies. And it's not just someone who's going to be a really good vote, right? We want someone who's going to actually be what we call a policy champion. Right. Individuals who carry bills, who can build coalitions, who can work really well with others to actually get the types of policies passed that we need to see for all Virginians. Okay. And the the financial backing behind 501c4 AFP Americans for Prosperity Virginia is largely the Koch brothers. So I know they're, they're part of our donor base, but we also have a large number of, of donors from across the country in Virginia as well as other places that support our mission. Right. And they're the ones that help us do what we're able to accomplish. And they, they were, uh, weren't the Koch brothers the ones that initiated AFP back in 2004? They were. I, mean, I, I think so because I was the first co chairman of Virginia back yeah, in 2004, they, 2004. Yeah, I know they've been heavily involved and I know they've been on the board as well, but yeah. uh, by no means like our only financial. Does, does that get in the way? Because we've, we've had this, you know, we, we, we like to draw, you know, uh, devils out of our people who get involved in politics, be it George Soros or the Koch brothers or Michael Bills here in Virginia more, more uh, directly. Um, it, is that a, has that been a problem to overcome, or is it just like an annoyance at this point? I would say it's not necessarily a problem. I think a lot of times I work a lot on issues like criminal justice reform, healthcare and education in the past, and I think initially when you're having conversations with with other you know partner organizations right. or other legislators. It can at times sort of be an initial conversation. I'm used to the question is basically the way to look at it. Right. But I think for the most part, aside from every once in a while, just in a headline, right, having sort of instead of calling us AFP, it's always Koch brother or Koch funded organization. Other than that, when we're actually in the offices with legislators, when we're connecting community leaders uh, to the issues that are going on, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a big barrier for what we're able to do. Yeah, I would imagine after a while, people are going to go, OK, but you brought someone from my district. Correct. I think a lot of times what happens is people might be a little bit surprised. You know, when we started working a lot on criminal justice issues, it was like, well, I didn't realize that that was an issue that the Cokes focus on. So I think there's there's a little bit of initial hesitation, but I think what we've been yeah. able to show is that we're consistent, we're principled in our approach, and we bring something that a lot of organizations don't, which is that grassroots community building arm that allows us to be successful here in Virginia. What's well, I mean, because when I read the uh, the book Science of Success by Charles Koch, yep, it, it it was definitely not what one. I had expected out of the book. I, I thought it was extraordinary. I highly recommended it. I wrote a review, went up on Amazon. Apparently, I moved book sales because it wasn't very highly ranked at the time. Kevin Gentry was very pleased with me. Uh, works for the Koch brothers up in D.C. Um, but in, so when you talk about criminal justice and the Koch brothers, Charles Koch in particular, mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily surprised. And you talk about the full potential. You've said that several times. The full potential of the human of the individual. And that's what they believe in their company. Talk about that and why AFP focuses on that. So Science is a great book, right? I know after that we had good profit. If you haven't got a chance to look at Believe in People yet, I'll get you a copy because that's one of the Believe in ones. People? Believe in People. I think that's exactly the reason why Charles it is book that we two? work. Yep. That's okay. exactly one of the reasons that we work on the issues that we do is that we come into it with this understanding that everyone has the ability to achieve tremendous things. And if we trust individuals and we empower them to do the things that they care the most about, that they're closest to the issues that face their community, and we give them the resources and the avenues in which to be able to, to move beyond that, everyone's able to do that. And so all the issues that we work on are focused on how can we take what currently right now is largely a government-driven top-down paradigm where a lot of policies come from a small group of internal insiders, right, having conversations on what's better for everybody else. Why don't we go to individuals that are in the communities that are facing the problems day in and day out 
that have the actual solutions to those issues and give them the avenues in which to find what that looks like and actually empower how policies are passed here. Well, and I think it's an incredibly important part of the process because having served in the House of Delegates and knowing how the process works, how a lot of issues are set up by staff or other legislative organizations and how those are funded, a lot of these uh, issues and their solutions come to you pre-baked. Mm -hmm. And they come from all these, these and it's tough to understand who's behind what. And, and as a legislator, you sort of get trapped or uh, caught in that, in that element of, oh, we're all supporting this bill because it's a really good idea. They tried it in Kentucky or California or Connecticut or whatever it is. And then you come back and you kind of go, well, who's behind all this? And it gets very, it gets very clouded as, as to, the, um, as to the, the process. And, and because with legislators, I, what I found a lot is that my ideas that came from my constituents usually didn't get the light of day, right? They didn't get a full hearing. And there's a process to engage so that it can get more of the, the broader context and the broader community involved in particular policy issues. How is AFP able to disrupt I'm not suggesting that you do, but it sounds like you do, or that's your intent, that process. Yeah, so I think we do it in a couple of ways. I think you mentioned two things there that are definitely things that we try to replicate. Because we have 35 state chapters, we almost have the ability to be like this laboratory of ideas, right? And so during this legislative session, we've got some continuations of previous things. You know, we have one of our issues under that economic progress bucket that we talk about, removing barriers to allow all individuals to succeed. Um, you know, Delegate Michael Webert had a bill that was sort of the red tape reduction pilot program. Mm -hmm. It was the first of its kind, right? You saw all of a sudden you see Donald Trump grab that idea and go ahead and do it at the federal level too. Well, now that we've been able to see over a couple of years how successful that was, we're going back for another bite at the apple and, and Delegate Weber has a bill this year that would basically be like a red tape reduction 2.0. So we can build upon our own ideas when we've seen success. We can also build upon success that we've seen in other states. You look at an issue like regulatory sandboxes, which is also a bill that uh, Delegate Weber's carrying this what's session. That, what's a regulatory sandbox? A regulatory sandbox is basically over a, a finite period of years, in this case it would be about five years, you would remove a number of the, the initial sort of administrative hurdles for a business or an individual to go ahead and apply to try out a new concept, right? Basically removing all those barriers to entry that would be the things that prevent a lot of innovative, uh, innovative ideas from happening. And so you've right. seen this in industries like financial technology or legal services or banking in a lot of states. Uh, this past year, Utah was the first to do the, this type at a universal level, where they basically said, hey, for the next three to five years, we're gonna go ahead and remove a number of these administrative hurdles, paperwork hurdles, and basically make it so that you can try a number of different ideas on how we can find the best solutions towards the problems that face individuals. And it's great to see in Utah, but now we have the opportunity to do that here in Virginia. And how difficult is that to translate from one state to the next? Because, again, and I hate to go back to the time when I was here, but when someone would come, would come in and say, hey, we did this in such and such state, we'd go, we don't care. Yeah, I don't represent Utah, California, Texas, Florida, Illinois, whatever, you know, Iowa. I, I, I have the 20th House District in the Shenandoah Valley. Yep. Tell me that's going to sell back home. And that's part of the, I guess, the translation uh, service that you might provide for some of these uh, constituencies. So part of that, right, is we look at what's what has worked in other states. As you mentioned, Virginia definitely has its own way of doing things, and a lot of times they don't like to be necessarily compared to North no. Carolina or you Kentucky know. or West you Virginia, know. right? Where are you from, Jacob? Huh, I'm actually, so I, I've been in Virginia for about 12 years now, okay. but my dad was uh, Air Force, so I bounce okay. all around a little bit. But right. um, but yeah, so that's definitely something that we've, we've experienced. But what it does what it does allow us to do is see ideas that have worked in other states, 
We can then work with individuals that we have on our policy team to be able to try to, to aggregate that and make it so that's as close to the Virginia code as possible, just to make some of those just administrative hurdles a little bit lower. Um, but what we really sets us apart is again, being able to then take, how does this affect my constituents is the question you asked, right? Well, then right. we right. bring your constituents to you and have them talk about how this would be an issue that would really help them. Hey, we're a business who's been trying to do this type of service for a long time, but we haven't been able to because the process takes forever, right? right? Like an issue that we've talked a lot about is something like certificate of public need, right? And we actually had uh, our sister organization. You've Americans. gone there. Let's we, go to see. Yeah, we have. <laughs> so we've had our, our sister organization. Check that box this morning. We've had our, uh, our sister organization, Americans Prosperity Foundation, actually did a FOIA request and looked at sort of how long does it take and what sort of the process look like when it comes to applying for those licenses. And we found that uh, the average Virginia process takes about 500 days to hear whether it's a yes or a no. Um, so that's well over a year and a half. Correct. To get an answer as to whether you can construct yes. a business mm -hmm. based upon the regulatory framework of the Commonwealth that says we're going to determine what needs are applied. Go ahead and for the audience explain mm -hmm. what certificate of public need is, not necessarily in the in the viewpoint of by AFP because I know you've been you've been at this one yeah. for several years. So um, the way that I would look at it is essentially it is. If you are a business who's trying to apply to either start a new medical uh, service or to go ahead and add some type of technology like an imaging, or you wanna go ahead and increase the number of beds to be able to provide more care for the patients that you have, you have to go to a board and, and effectively ask permission to be able to do so. Um, which I think in, its, in in itself is not necessarily a terrible so what's idea. What's the board? Think Who is the board? It. It's, it's made up of other medical, medical professionals. So effectively you're asking your competitors or potential competitors to approve you being able to now be part of that market share. Um, and so what we find typically is that the answer happens to be no more than it happens to be yes. Okay, so but so in the COPN, this framework in Virginia you feel is too restrictive to allow, and I'm gonna put words in your mouth if I may, free yeah. market forces to determine the, the size and scope and cost of healthcare delivery. And what we saw during the pandemic, right, was that pretty much every governor, Republican, Democrat, or otherwise, right, the first thing they did to address the pandemic was they removed all of these restrictions that made it more difficult for individuals to have access to the care they needed, and it saved lives. And so if it was safe enough to do during the pandemic, it's probably something that we should just continue to go ahead and remove entirely moving forward because we saw that it was helpful for getting people the medical outcomes they needed. So in an emergency situation, they went with the free market. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah. And it was successful. Yeah. Or more so than it would have been otherwise. Exactly. Is that your contention? Yeah. And what has the Youngkin administration said to that going forward? I, I or, think- Or do you know? Have you had, have you had the conversation? I know you've had- it's early in their process. Yeah, no, no I, I know that it's, it's I know um, they put out sort of their, their day one game plan, right? There were a lot of things that we like to see, including Delegate Weber's bill was one of the things that he mentioned in terms right. of regulatory reform, we decided to see. We're excited about a lot of the conversations around education. Um, I think when it comes to healthcare, it's just, it's a little bit of a bigger issue right now, but I know that we're definitely doing what we can on our end to continue to push the narrative around removing certificate of public need moving forward, but also then tailoring that with a lot of the issues we've pushed for a couple of years now, when it comes to sort of what we call the personal option for healthcare. Um, and that's things like telemedicine, remote patient monitoring, expanding scope of practice, continuing to look at direct primary care, really giving everyone this full menu of options that's gonna make it so they have the best access to the care that they need when they need it at a price they can afford. 
So in the, in the construct though, we're, we're looking at those free market forces. Are you for an entire repeal of COPN? Are you pushing for that this year? Are you looking for reforms? Like, look, it's 500 days. Can you get this down to 180 days, like half a year to get, to get a decision whether you can put an imaging um, company in Roanoke or Lynchburg or you know, Culpepper? I mean, what, do you, are you looking to streamline that process as a victory? So we would love to see, obviously, a forward bill. Like the end of the day, you know, they did that at the federal level. They basically just said, hey, states figure it out, right? We've seen in other states that have gotten rid of COPN, or as most of the country calls it, CON, because again, Virginia's unique. We like to call things <laughs> a little bit different here. Um, but of a lot correct. of, exactly, a lot of states that remove their, their uh, certificate of need laws, hospitals did not go out of business. In fact, everyone continued to profit and people had more access to healthcare. So um, we would like to see a full repeal. But in the meantime, we at least can go ahead and continue to do some of these studies around like, can we get that number down? Can we look at sort of, maybe there's certain parts of industries that we can go ahead and make those things a little bit more expedited or allow for someone, hey, if you're someone who wants to just open an imaging center and all you wanna do is just open a couple of MRI machines and just do radiology imaging, not provide any surgery or other services, you just wanna be sort of that one-stop shop for all things imaging, you're not really competing with the hospitals, right? You're doing a very specific set of things that you want to do. But you're also not required to do what the hospitals are required to do. I think that's the pushback, John, from the hospitals. Like, look, you want to open up an imaging center, go right ahead. But you have to take patients at 3 o'clock in the morning like we do. And you have to yeah. staff them. You have to provide all the emergency equipment. And that's the imbalance they find in, in, the, in the market. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot about the things they do, like, you know, that they have charity care and things like that. I think if you look at the, the, the margins that a lot of these hospitals have, I don't necessarily know if that stands up. I think another thing that we saw when Medicaid expansion did occur here in Virginia was that that sort of was meant to be the, the trade-off that occurred, right? Basically, hey, we could probably go ahead and open up more opportunity for competition within this marketplace because now we have sort of this additional Medicaid funding that can cover some of these charity care elements that make sense. I think what we would like to just see is, hey, let's go ahead and open it up. Let's make it a little bit easier for individuals to apply for these opportunities because ultimately it's not about whether or not the hospital succeeds, right? It's about do individuals have access to the care that they need? Let's flip the, the script on that, right? And focus on what do the patients need to be healthier, to be happier, to be more successful. And then we can reconstruct the system from there as we go along. And that, and that goes to your uh, full potential of, of the individual. By and large. Now, uh, you mentioned Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very contentious issue. A lot of conservatives signed off on it when, especially in rural areas, because mm -hmm. they benefited from you know, the Medicaid expansion for their constituencies who have a lower threshold, lower, lower income. And let's be honest, Medicaid expands every year. Mm -hmm. And the way to mitigate the expansion every year or to control the costs were the reforms that the conservatives, Republicans, if you will, put in the legislation that everybody signed off on. The big deal, the grand deal was we're all going to expand Medicaid and we're going to get these conservative reforms. Um, Republicans lose the election in 2019. Ralph Northam, you know, throws out the reforms, does not inform Senator Hanger or Delegate Jones who cut the deal, went right behind their back. They were very upset about that. They thought they had an ironclad deal. Um, what is AFP doing to resurrect those reforms? So I think- Or are you? <clears throat> so we've taken a different approach, right? So in, in 2017, we were there with everybody else, right? We were very upset the Medicaid expansion went. We did a number of large grassroots and digital and everything campaigns around sort of making sure that that did not happen. When we saw individuals that we typically work really well with that do a lot of really great things, right? Like people like Terry Kilgore, who were people who voted in favor of it, right? A lot of groups continued to sort of just, you know, be upset and, and do a lot of accountability, which we also will do. But that kind of allowed us to take a step back and say, wait a second, if we work with, with 
they'll get killed on so many other issues. And we think that he's right on so many other issues. Like, where did we get it wrong here, right? right. And it, it, like you mentioned, it's a lot of these individuals had constituencies back home that needed access, right? And unfortunately, Medicaid seemed to be what at the time may have been the best way to provide that. So that's when we started really leaning into looking at things like what we now call the personal option. But at that time started very, very small in terms of let's look at scope of practice. Let's look at telemedicine reform. How can we make sure that when individuals need access to care, their first and only option isn't just seeking additional government services, right? Like how can we make sure that if you're an individual who's in Southwest Virginia and you may be closest to your near hospital is a couple hours away, but you could go ahead and call up a doctor anywhere in the country and have a conversation real quick and a right. consultation to know if you need to go to that hospital instead of spending that three hours to get there, why don't we have the ability to do that right now? Right. And so what we've really learned from that experience here in Virginia that we've been able to share with other states is, hey, when you guys are getting into a fight about how do we provide coverage, we should be talking about how do we provide care and how can we make sure that the individuals have access to the care outcomes that they need and let's attack that issue first before we continue to talk about who's paying the bill. Was, it, was that a, an <clears throat> argument too lately discovered or discovered too late? Because conservatives expended a lot of energy and a lot of money saying we're not going to cover poor people. I mean, that's all they did. All the Medicaid expansion was, was expand the threshold that which you were um, able to be um, compliant or to, to qualify for Medicaid. And the, the counter narrative was, look, Medicaid expands every year and it's got 30 percent fraud. And if, we, if there was such a better narrative to have there rather than saying we're against poor people getting health care. Is, is that you talk about the full potential? Yeah. And was that was that a, was that poorly done politically? I, I think again, where where we've really you lost been, the narrative, hundred percent. The narrative was lost, right? But again, I think it's we spent so much time arguing over who's going to foot the bill, right? As opposed to like, are people getting access to the care that they need, right? right? So, so we've been trying to talk about it's all about care, not coverage, right? And and the way that the narrative was lost in that was like, hey, it's who's going to be footing the bill? But again, even if you have access to a card in your pocket, right? If you still are three hours from the nearest hospital, if you still don't have access to exactly the coverage, but if you don't get the care, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Because at Lee County, uh, Terry Kilgore's district, you you know, it's hours to a hospital Mm -hmm. if there's a physician on on staff there. So if you have a heart attack in one part of the county, you're not going to make it. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. And so he goes back to his constituents and said, did I make your lives better? Did I access and realize your full potential? Mm -hmm. I think his answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's why we worked. And that's why, you know, right afterwards, we started working with with Delgate Kilgore on getting some of this telemedicine stuff, not just passed, right? But having reciprocity, having revocation monitoring, having this covered, right? Whether you're under private or public insurance, right? Because ultimately, if people are going to go ahead and utilize these things, let's make it as easy as possible, no matter who you are and where you are. And so that kind of is how we really started to shift how we focus on things. Um, and I think it's been successful ever since. We've been able to see a lot of really great telemedicine reform, a lot of really great remote, uh, remote patient monitoring, a lot of things around scope of practice for physician's assistants and for nurse practitioners. Um, you know, there's a bill this year that we're working with Delegate Don Adams on where, you know, they they sort of, they took it from where you had to do, you know, five years of being a nurse practitioner to then being two years to be able to have sort of your own additional scope. 
Um, and that was temporary. And so we're actually working this year with Delegate Don Adams to go ahead and remove the sunset provision of that, which would allow it to be two years continued moving forward. We've worked with a number of delegates and senators and on both sides of the aisle on making sure, hey, how are we ensuring that we're getting the best quality healthcare outcomes that we can right. moving forward? Is in a, a larger, larger construct politically though, and this is when you know conservatives or anyone has lost an argument politically, is they don't go back and try to repeal what was just done. Mm -hmm. And there's been real no effort to repeal the Medicaid expansion. But my question to you goes back a little bit further. Yeah. When conservatives seem to, have, seem to have lost the fiscal conservative argument from the 90s, and obviously it's a generation ago, but that was a large part of how they came into power in Washington, D.C. and around the country in response to Clintonian policies. They came up with the contract with America, and they seem to have abandoned after the Tea Party uh, I wouldn't call it a debacle, but uh, uh, devolution politically off the fiscal conservative message. Was that a, a result in this maybe what, you know, part of the Coke philosophy and not that that's AFPs, but the, the free market and what happened during the housing crash, the subprime mortgage scandals that were going on. It, it, is that in the bigger context of when conservatives really lost the fiscal conservative argument? Potentially, I think I think a lot of times what happens, you know, whether it's on healthcare, right, where you know it's sort of uh, the public option or bust, right, Medicaid, Medicare for all or bust. I think a lot of times where where we get into it is individuals are looking for when there's a big problem, they're looking for a big solution, right? It's just a natural way we think right. about things, right. and so it's like, hey, what is incrementalism what is, is not what sexy? Is, what is the, it's just not what is the thing that you're going to do that's going to fix it, right? So if they're thinking about it as a one to one, right? Mm -hmm. Our position and that idea of believing in people and sort of these bottom-up solutions and empowering individuals that are closest to the problem to come up with a solution is the way you fix a big problem is not one big answer. Right. It's hundreds of thousands of individuals that have the best knowledge and skills, but also are connected to how they can make an impact, all doing their part, right? And it takes longer, and and, and you said not as sexy, right? But like it's, it's just it's, it's just harder not. to it's harder to pitch. It's not a bumper sticker slogan, right? It's just not. And you you've, in um, we have four kids, and we go back and look at the pictures from their from their childhood, and you go, Mike, how did you grow up so quickly? Yeah. One day at a time, right? You don't notice the change. There's a um, Jennifer McClellan's husband, David Mills, mm -hmm. a, a political consultant, um, opposite side of probably your aisle, but he has a great expression for this. Large complex systems reward small change. And we have large complex systems that when you go attacking it, they're gonna push back mm -hmm. because there's too much change and disrupt too many people. Yeah. And uh, organizations like yourself who bring those individuals and say, look, this can help me here can be very effective over the long haul. 100%, and that's why, you know, and part of the, the idea of making sure that we're helping to, to win that narrative battle is, you know, when we had the success that we had at the end of last year, we got what we felt was building upon our policy majorities on the issues that we care the most about. We were able to get a new governor and, and Governor Glenn Youngkin, which we were very excited about, the opportunities that that can have for us moving forward. We go went into this year with 2022 with really big dreams about what this is going to look like. And so we actually crafted what we're calling a new vision for the old dominion. And it's made up of those three major buckets, right? It's, it's removing barriers to economic progress for all individuals. Right. It's a personal option for healthcare, and it's a brighter future for our students. And so everything that we're doing for this session, and, and honestly, probably moving forward, is going to be focused on, we heard what the voters said, right? We've heard what constituents, communities have been saying about what they care the most about. It's these kitchen table issues, right? Education, yep. healthcare. Yep. Is my money going to the right places? Do I have what I need to provide for my family, right? 
And how can we, because you know, we're, we can't do everything, right? We, right. we believe in institutions and, and you know, there's community, there's education, there's business, and there's government. And AFP functions within the key institution of government, right? So we're not here to fix everyone's problems because that's not the government's job either, right? What we can say is how can we utilize the political system and the state and federal government to be able to most times remove barriers to individuals coming up with their own solutions, right? So that's why when it looks like things like economic progress, it's not how do I assure that you have the that you have everything that you need, right? It's how do I remove the regulatory barriers? How do I remove the fiscal from barriers, the spending barriers from you being able to achieve that yourself? Now, you, you, the big ones, um, you mentioned the economic progress. We discussed healthcare, I think, mm -hmm. well here. But I think what, one of the things that uh, AFP is becoming more known for is its work in criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that and how it ties into education reform. So I think when you look at the criminal justice issue, it's we work on that just like we do every other issue, right? Because we believe that individuals who unfortunately encounter a lot of the, the justice system issues, that erects a huge barrier for their success moving forward. Right, almost so, forever. Yeah, and so we address everything across the entire um, spectrum of the moment that you encounter action with law enforcement all the way to when you are someone who's released, right? And so we look at over-criminalization issues. Are all the laws that are on the books actual violations of public safety, right? Or are they a little bit more like more paternalism and, and mentality, right? Where it's sort of just like, don't do these things because we don't like it. Because I think I think in the 1990s, uh, policymakers overreached. Exactly. Crime was bad. Yeah. And they said, we got to crack down on crime. Yep. They went overboard. Big problem, big solution, right? I mean, I think we all remember the, the conversation in 2020 about Joe Biden's role yeah. in the crime bill and everyone coming, oh, we got to be tough on crime. Now that we're so tough on crime, we realize the devastation that over-prosecution uh, has brought to a lot of communities. Exactly. So you look at overcriminalization, right? Then, the, then you start going into. Is it overcriminalization <clears throat> or over prosecution, or both? I think it's both, right? So I think the the potential over prosecution is when you start getting into the next bucket, which is sort of that due process issue. So basically, are the laws that are on the books, are we only punishing things that are actually violations of public safety? Then you have okay. Proposing that you've then violated one of those laws, right? Do you have access to counsel? Do you have the representation that you need to actually have due process, right? Are, are, are everyone playing by the same rules here? Do we have like an actual equal rights system? Then you have uh, sort of everything that's in the pre-trial bucket, right? Um, and then you have sentencing. Are, are our sentences fair or proportional? Do they make sense? And then you have reentry, right? Which is, you know, second chances, which is issued that a lot of individuals and a lot of organizations who sort of are more on the conservative center-right perspective focus most of their time on. I think where we've been really intentional with AFP is we refer to as those first three areas as like the front end, and then we have the sentencing and the reentry as the back end. And the back end impacts a lot of individuals, but the front end is really, we want to make sure that we're not just pulling people out of the river. We want them to stop falling in the river in the first place, right. right? And so that's where we've been focusing a lot of our issues. And so looking at whether it's the marijuana legalization, whether it's looking at things like decriminalization, looking at things like pretrial and bail reform. Well, let's let's stick with you yeah. know, the, the marijuana issues, yeah. decrim. Uh, where is AFP on decriminalization versus legalization? So we are in favor of both both decriminalization and legalization. I think where the legalization gets tricky, specifically with the bill that passed last year, is then where does the regulatory structure come into that? Okay. And I think once you start having basically the the ABC of marijuana. I mean, I mean it's not like these this is not like marijuana can't be delivered at market prices within a half an hour. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. That's a free flowing market right there. Yeah. So I think and that's so setting up these licenses could be seen as very restrictive in the marketplace and not going to do anything about the black market. And you're setting up an opportunity for more criminalization just on the tax front. 100%. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so we're in favor of definitely the legalization side of it because we think that would that again falls into sort of more of the potential overcriminalization where it's right. a lot more of like, is this dangerous? Potentially, right? But it's probably a little bit more of just individuals didn't like other people acting in certain ways that didn't agree with their sentiment. And so we made right. it something that was illegal. So, I mean, do we need to legalize marijuana? That's something that's already available. Just decriminalize it and say, it's just, we're not going to punish you for it. So I think there's... What's the, what's the, what's the benefit of legalizing something that's already legal? I mean, it allows for... I mean, their... it is relatively legal. Yeah. I mean, you, it's not like it's un, not, un, not available. Yeah, I think that the ability to have a marketplace does help and it does prevent potentially there being some black market tobacco. I think where the issues that exist within some of the current language has to do with who's able to get those licenses, what does that process look like, and what's the administrative stuff. And I know right. we've sent over a number of recommendations to the governor's office in ways for us to be able to say, hey, let's make what was a really great idea, right, but was obviously a huge undertaking last year to be able to kind of fix some of those issues moving forward. Okay. I just see it as an opportunity yeah. to say, look, you know, do you need to have a business opened to offer all these different products when you can get it delivered? Hell, heck, we'll probably have drone deliveries in the next couple of years yeah. with, with, with marijuana. Um, let's talk about education reform. Yeah. I know AFP has been working for years in this space. Education savings accounts a big one. Let's talk about that. What uh, What is an education savings account, ESAs? So um, education was a really big issue over the last year, right? We saw, we actually did a little bit of polling immediately after the election. We, when the people that we polled, we had about 80% said they voted the way that they did because of the education issue. Really? And it was a number of different issues, right? But the whole thing about this is parents felt as though they lacked control over whether or not their children had the best access to the education they want. And so we are pushing for educational opportunity, educational freedom, where we're empowering parents and students to find whatever avenue is best for them to realize their own unique talents, right? And apply that in a way that makes sense. And so while there's a lot of conversations around mask mandates and CRT and a lot of other issues that that get very divisive, we're looking at it as like, hey, whether you want to be in person or virtual, whether you want to go to a charter school, public school, private school, virtual school, if you want to go ahead and go to the the great you know grandma down the street and learn piano, you should get credit for learning piano, right? There's all these opportunities okay. that we have to allow for both the funding to follow the student rather than the system, but also to really empower individuals to be able to learn everywhere. And we have an opportunity to go ahead and ensure that that can, that can happen. And part of that is through ESAs or education savings accounts. Which are? Um, Effectively, it's, it allows for a part of your tax dollars that would typically go towards public education mm-hmm. to go back to the parents to be able to dictate if they want to go towards that. Typically, it's a, it's a smaller sum. Is it is it similar to health savings accounts? It's similar. Um, you know, the example that we've seen is as our you know our neighbor to the west in West Virginia. They just recently passed the Hope Scholarships. Um, and essentially it would allow for anyone to be able to access uh, funds to be able to utilize in the way that they see fit. So that could be you know, getting private tutoring, that could be going to a different education system, that could be doing open enrollment into a different district, that could be doing to a different open enrollment within their own district. Um, so West Virginia is ahead of us when it comes to school opportunities. They are. Education access. Is it Education, is it, education is, opportunity, education freedom, yeah. Is it, is it more, is, I mean, trying to, to align the, the terminology from one, policy to the other. Is, yeah. it, is this an access issue? Is it a, a, 
an options issue. I mean, some people don't want to talk about school choice. It's like a bad term. I think it's a little bit of both, right? So I think, you know, um, you know, one of the things that we're excited about is that Governor Youngkin has been talking a lot about education, you know, in his in his state of the address. He talked a lot about the idea of empowering parents and students to have more control over their education. That's all great. That sounds awesome. We love all of that, right? right. Um, you know, expanding the number of charter schools is really beneficial for people who are within the distance of being able to get those charter schools. So right. for them, it is increasing the access and the opportunity for them, right? But then there's people in a lot of other parts of the states that would be a lot better off if they just had, you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars additional to go ahead and provide for that tutoring that they need right. or the services that they need. Or, you know, a lot of individuals that we saw unfortunately didn't seem to do great when, it, when, when schools started to shut down. Right. But there's, I'm sure, other students that actually did really well. And so all of a sudden now having that top-down mandate of everyone has to go back into schools five days a week, right. there might be students who love that, right? But there's also students who would say, actually, I, I really liked virtual education. I know when I was in school, um, I had, I probably did even better when I had virtual classes mm -hmm. or whenever I was able to sort of learn at my own speed as sure. opposed to sort of like, here's the structure and you have to fit into that structure. Yeah, because my structure in college was predominantly just lectures and spit it back out. And it, I did well in it, but I didn't learn a lot. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I spit it back out. But as far as absorption, I'm, I'm far more visual, uh, so I understand that. Uh, where is the Youngkin administration on your issues, and do they just want you to support their issues on lab partnership schools? Again, I think I think for all of us, it's a matter of like charter schools, lab partnership schools. Those are all really good first steps, right? I think. And you're, you're supporting sure, those. We're supporting the idea of having the more opportunity to access. Okay. Now we we've actually been but pushing, not thrilled. We would like Fair. to see a little bit more. And I think Not that's excited. why for eighty percent in your polling saying they made their they made their choices based on education, you're taking the incremental approach. We'll take what we can get. This is where Yunkin is. We'll go there. <clears throat> Do you have plans to go beyond that? Yeah, we'd like to see universal ESAs, and we'd like to okay. go ahead and see learn everywhere. Again, like we're we're moving in the direction. Right? There's some bills from from Delegate LaRock. There's a bill from Delegate Nick Freitas. There's a couple others that are out there. That would be expansion of ESAs. They're not quite universal yet, right? right. They're still focused most, mostly on income or, or location. Okay. But we have opportunity. <clears throat> There's some stuff around, again, that intra or inter-district open enrollment that we have the ability to, to go ahead and continue pushing for. That's all great stuff. And I think right now there's actually a provision in the budget that would allow for like a one-time $1,500 stipend um, that would cover uh, the ability for people to be able to learn everywhere that okay. we'd like to see, but obviously we'd like to see that you know be more permanent and potentially even look at so what that. You see a lot of momentum like. going on. Yeah, there's is our, I mean, obviously, not obviously, but for most of our uh, learned audience uh, who are very aware of politics, I mean, Virginia is election nerd Disneyland. We pay close attention to politics. We pay pretty close attention to policy. Um, you know, where are Democrats on this? Have you seen any? Are there any rays of hope? for passing your legislation with Democrats in the, and especially in the state Senate? I think there is. I think there's a lot of conversations where um, senators are excited about the ability to still have some movement forward on criminal justice issues and for there to not be a complete rollback of a number of things that we did feel were positive over the last couple of years, specifically okay. within criminal justice. And then, and obviously then the House wanting to get some of these education reforms passed. So I think there's definitely some opportunity is there, collaboration. is there a nexus and some synergy there? But look, I mean, they are connected. If, yeah. if people don't get an education, they're more likely to, you know, get in trouble mm -hmm. with the law, first of all. And are you finding you know, there's a, a cross current and some legislators say, look, you know, I see your point here and I see your point there. Let's just try to get everything better you know, or some things done better here. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the one of the benefits of having a divided 
uh, structure, right, is that you you kind of hopefully force them to work together. And I think there is a little bit of a nexus when it comes to some of the criminal justice issues that we're seeing on the Senate side and right. some of the education issues that we're seeing on the House side. Do I think everything's going to get through? I'm not that much of an optimist, but I do think there's an but opportunity better. for there to be some good stuff that okay. doesn't roll back entirely, still advances some legislation moving forward on criminal justice, allows for there to at least be a couple bites of the apple when it comes to education, and then hopefully there's a lot more to build on for next year. And the... Uh, it seems to me that AFP, Americans for Prosperity, took the initiative because you know the Republicans were out of the majority, and you said, "Well, we got to work on these issues. It aligns with our philosophies." And now that there's this, you know, uh, half and half, if you will, a, a split legislature, you said we might be able to get the best of both worlds. Is, so, you are you looking at this as an as an opportunistic? next two years? So I think we've had, I mean, we've been very successful over the last couple of years, right? You know, obviously having expressly advocated against Ralph Northam in 2017, we were kind of putting ourselves in a little bit of an unadvantageous position when we first came in, but we were able to see a lot of our healthcare reforms passed unanimously and had you know incredible bipartisan support. We were able to get a lot of our legislation passed and then signed by the governor at the time. And so we've really been setting ourselves up for success over the last six years or so okay. to be able to actually genuinely work with anybody to do good. And so now that we have a little bit of a different reshuffle when it comes to some of the, the individuals that are in different roles within the Senate and the House and obviously now in the governor's mansion, we had some things that passed a couple of years ago that were vetoed by the governor, right? Or some things that sort of just died on the cutting room floor when it came to you know, conference committees or otherwise. We now have a really good opportunity to work with our, our policy champions in the House and the Senate on the different issues that we engage on to really be able to see what are the best ideas and let's get those out there. Okay. Uh, appreciate your time, Jacob Fish yeah. with the Americans for Prosperity Virginia chapter. Let's talk about Jacob Fish a little bit more personally. You said you moved to Virginia 12 years ago. Yep. Uh, tell us about your background, education, and the like. Yeah. So um was born in Ohio, so I'm a Buckeyes fan. Sorry about that. And uh, should be. Yeah, and you know, Dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around. We were in uh, Japan for a couple of years, then went to Florida, then Louisiana, then Virginia. Um, went to Grafton High School here in Virginia. Went okay. to Christian Newport for a couple of years there. Um, joined AFP about six years ago. Um, actually, in three or four days will be my six year anniversary with right. AFP, and uh, have bounced around. Have been in Virginia Beach, and then Richmond, and then. Uh, currently, my wife and I live in uh, Stafford, but we're hoping to hopefully get back to Richmond here. Sometime. All right, what's the uh, favorite books? Favorite books? I actually do audio books. Um, well, some people are built that way. I know. It's good. So <laughs> I would definitely recommend Believe. I don't, I don't have the attention span. <laughs> I would definitely recommend Believe in People. That's okay. That's a really good one. Um, think like a rocket scientist. Okay. It really kind of reshapes some of the things that you do. And then there's one, I don't know if I can be exposed, it's Get S Done is a book okay. that's really good. So. Okay, Get S Done. Uh, TV shows, movies, what do you got? What's what's on uh, Jacob um, I was a huge fan of The Blacklist, so I'll still go back okay. and watch it every now and again. Person of Interest is a really good one to go ahead okay. and watch on Netflix every now and then, just kind of go back into the old stables. Um, what else have we been watching recently? My wife and I usually just kind of watch like trash TV shows at the end of the day. So, What's a trash TV show? Uh, Married at First Sight. You ever heard of that? I think I've heard of it. I it is. It. So they, they actually have like, they do like personality tests and they go ahead and like marry people. Like the first time you meet them is you're married to them. Okay. It's like a legit marriage. And then it's like follows the next 90 days of their life and whether or not they choose to stay married or get divorced. Just absolute trash TV, but it's really entertaining. Okay. Uh, <laughs> favorite movies? Favorite movies. Gladiator. Definitely up there. All right. Yeah. Great soundtrack too. Um, what else? So you're getting ready to unleash hell? Is that what you? Yeah. Okay. Gladiator, Watchmen. Okay. Based on the graphic novel. All right. Good. 
Sports teams, favorite sports teams aside from the Buckeyes. So Rams. So they're in the Super Bowl. How That's did you get good. to the Rams? So my dad was a Rams fan, great show on turf, right? And my mom okay. used to work for Edward Jones. And one of the benefits oh, they had, Louis. Edward Jones Dome, right? Okay. So started following the Rams, had a couple of really good years, and then it wasn't so good. Huge Steven you Jackson. my Bengals fan. man over here. Well, we're going to have a really tough time after this then. I mean, I get well, This is why we do this. As a Buckeyes fan, though, I love the idea of Joe Burr out there doing really good things. But, you know, he had a not chance that for much. LSU. I know. Just not too good this week. Just not right. too good this right, week. Right, right, right. Yes. All right. Anybody, anything else on the uh, favorite list there, favorite music? Anything we should know about I Jacob listen, Fish? I, did, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to, like, sports radio shows and sports stuff like that. Shows. But, yeah, I don't really listen to a whole lot of music. But. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, Jacob Fish, thanks for coming in and joining us yeah, here at the VIP Podcast. Congratulations. You, sir, are a VIP. Oh, fantastic. Glad Virginia, to hear it. Virginia in Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Saxman. This show has been brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia, and Virginia Free. Thanks for joining us.